0: non rockabotus must stop. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to sink it.
1: Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? delusional. Yeah, delusional. Yeah, delusional is okay in your worldview. I'm an animal. You don't chastise chickens for being delusional. You don't chastise pigs for being delusional. So you calling me delusional using your worldview is perfectly okay. It doesn't really hurt. <laughs> she hung up on me. <laughs> yeah! Oh! Yeah! Woo! That's a joke, Pastor.
2: When we have the real message of truth, we cannot let somebody say they're speaking truth when they're not.
4: Take an amazing journey to a place that will blow your mind
1: and move your mind so you will never be the same again. For since by man came death, By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers, when he hands over the kingdom to to God and to, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be def- abolished is death. Are you all right, Jeff? I'm having a hard time. Oh, What's up? man. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> My brain just shut down there. And I don't know. I think, I think some, I'm, I'm so excited about our guest for today. Maybe so. it's the weather. What's that? Maybe it's the weather. I think it is. I think it they're yeah. not used to this wet rain coldness. Yeah. You're so excited
3: on. today. I saw you tear a phone
1: book in half. <laughs> <laughs> Looks good at
3: that, by the way. He's can, really good. Can at you that. really do that, Luke? <laughs> I can but our guest can. You
1: may, maybe could have. Okay.
3: Yeah, yeah. Back
1: in the day. So- I have I have no idea what that little talking is in the background there, but uh, well, anyway, we're back, and uh, it's a brand new year. ApologiaRadio.com dot com is where you guys get all the past episodes. I'm Jeff. They call me the Ninja. That's Luke the Bear right there.
3: What is
1: up? And that's King Ginger on the ones and twos. I'm here. And we actually also have Randy, our special guest in studio today, who's going to hook us up with a new segment. Randy, what's up?
2: How are you this year?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we call him Steady Randy, Steady Randy, because he's got steady hands and he works the jib. The Barry Jib. He actually created the jib. He, he did. did. He, he made custom the jib. built it. That's pretty yes. awesome.
5: Is that like a World War II tripod cannon, like a cannon tripod that you put on there, man? Uh,
2: yes, it's it's definitely uh, has some, uh, some history to it from somewhere. <laughs> Looks like it could
5: have held an old movie camera. It killed people, I think. Yes, yeah, people.
1: yeah. It's robust. It shot rockets at one point. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so hey, we're back. We have a lot to do today and this year. Want to just praise God for all of you, all your support, all of your encouragement. Uh, let's do this. Let's talk about what's up uh, today on the show. We have a very special guest. Uh, he's a friend of mine. Uh, somebody that um, I met uh, many years ago. It must. It must be about twenty years when uh, Dr. Edward wow. Dalcour and I first bumped into each other outside of the Mormon Temple. In uh, Mesa, Arizona, out doing evangelism, uh, Dr. Dalcour was with Dr. James White and his team, Alpha and Omega Ministries, outside on the sidewalk. And so we bumped into each other. Did he we, knock you down uh, he's, when you bumped into him?
4: Because <laughs> he's
1: such a big dude. Uh, and so we've had uh, Dr. Dalcour on before. And actually, I want to say this, the episode we had uh, Dr. Dalcour on uh, is one of my favorite. Uh, we talked about something that I don't know, he's kind of missed a lot. Today, we don't hear a lot about this, but we talked about oneness theology. Right. And uh, now, believe it or not, you might have actually heard a lot of people who believe in oneness theology. Right. Um, But we don't see a lot of necessarily engagement with it. So we talked about the Trinity. It's one of my favorite episodes. 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 So Dr. Edward Dalcour is with uh, ChristianDefense.org, ChristianDefense.org. It is the Department of Christian Defense Um, He, uh, let me just go ahead and read you a little bit of his biography here. He serves as the mentor, co-professor of theology at Greenwich School of Theology, London, England. He also holds the appointment of senior lecturer of the Northwest University Faculty of Theology. He is the president and founder of the Department of Christian Defense, a Christian apologetic ministry based in Los Angeles, California, like L.A., (laughs) Like L.A., dude. Dr. Delcour holds a Master in Apologetics from Columbia Evangelical Seminary and a Doctorate of Philosophy in Dogmatic Theology. He's so dogmatic. He is. He's just so dang dogmatic. Um, and so, Dr. Delcour, welcome to the program again, brother.
0: Hey, welcome. Glad to be here again.
1: All right. So, uh, let's, uh, what have you been up to? You've been tearing any phone books up lately? Uh, blowing up any water <laughs> bottles?
0: You know, I was afraid you would mention anything like that in my past life. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I haven't, but I still get some requests to do
1: that. <laughs> well, I, uh, that
0: I, I, people
4: in.
1: I should probably, uh, if you haven't listened to that past episode, let you guys know, um, Dr. Dalcour was uh, a member of the Power Team. Yes, sir. This is going way back. Some of you guys might remember the Power Team. They would travel across the country, <laughs> go to churches, do events, and they would basically hurt things for Jesus. They would uh, destroy
0: phone books. And then then we do altar calls. That's right. And then
1: altar calls. Watch me destroy this stuff. Watch me break things in half. And then now I want to share Jesus meek and mild with you. Yeah. Apparently it was effective. Very effective. I actually went. Hey, I never, I don't know if if I ever asked you, uh, Eddie, did you ever come to Phoenix and do any power team stuff? You know, that's how I met
0: James White, actually. Mm -hmm. Um I, I contacted him through, I forgot what, what contact resources we used to use um, before, uh, before we use them now on, on Internet. But I remember I, I found this, this typo in his King James book, and I didn't really know him. I said, hey, I'm page 98, you know, something. Anyways, we started talking, and I said, hey, I know you have kids, and I'm coming to, to Phoenix, Arizona. I'm on a group called The Power Team, and a bunch not you guys come out? And he didn't believe me. He didn't believe that I was on the power team at that time, and he said, oh, okay, why don't you come work out with me then? Because, you know, calling my bluff, and I said, okay. So he gave me his address, and I went to his house, and all his little buddies were there, and uh, actually it was uh, it was really fun, and, and we worked out, became friends ever since. So you lifted? He never went to the crusade.
1: Though. Okay, yeah, he, <laughs> you lifted with Dr. White. This is back in the day when Dr. Yeah, White let me, was let me beefy. T- yes.
0: yeah. He, he used to train. He used to train very hard. He used to squat. He used to... I mean, we had very we had a real intense workout in his backyard. He had all these rusty weights, and he he took it very seriously. And he was he was quite the quite the lifter back then.
1: Yeah, he was big and beefy. Now he's like this he's the skinny. Thin, he's a thin sort of uh, kind of hipster looking older dude who rides <laughs> bicycles. Bicyclist. The hipster bicyclist. Um
0: yeah. yeah I, I texted him a picture of what he used to look like. I said, I liked you better when you were like that. And he gave me this long lecture. Why it's unhealthy and why he doesn't want to be like that anymore and why riding the gets his heart rate It was like a it, it was out. It was probably hundreds of words just in this lecture he gave me on a text why he's not big anymore. It was really funny.
1: <laughs> well, you know if Doctor White does anything, he's thought about it long and hard. Yeah. Because um, uh, well, inconsistency is a sign of a failed argument, and so he wants to make sure that you understand why he's decided to do what he's done. So hey, let's let's talk. We we wanted to bring Eddie in. The first segment because um, uh, we want to just sort of have him with us as we talk about cultural stuff. Let me just uh, before we go to the second segment, I'm going to just at least bring this up um, on the radio show because it's a hot topic right now. Uh, this is uh, our president, uh, President Barack Obama. He's
5: such a great president, isn't he? Uh, well, well, can we just really?
3: I really like Marcus. Him. I'm about to tear you in
1: half, bro. The emotion, the emotion,
5: a goat! The emotion that he showed. Is just it moved me? Well, let me let me, me let me
1: say this. Um, <laughs> Gotta give him props where props are due. Um, the comedians—he's a good actor. In he is cars, a good actor. Com- Comedians, what is it, Marcus? Com- comedians com- drive.
5: Comedians and cars getting coffee.
1: Comedians and cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. He just did that. It actually is really.
5: Good. It yeah, because really he's yeah. a good actor.
1: And Sein- yeah, and Seinfeld it does just such a great job interviewing people. It was really good. Comedians in cars getting coffee. Uh, Seinfeld shows up at the White House and like knocks on the window while President Obama is inside there at his desk. And they go down and they they drive around the lot. They try to actually get out of the lot and security won't let them. And they go downstairs in the the bunker of uh, the White House and they uh, drink coffee and have a conversation. It was very interesting. But this it, it moved me. It moved you, yeah. So this is a little different. Uh, this is um, Obama uh, tearing up as he remembers Sandy Hook uh, and other uh, shooting victims uh, as he did an executive action on gun control. Here is our president uh, tearing up. From
3: every family who never imagined that their loved one would be taken from our lives by
5: get that photograph
1: head down, (laughs) deep thought
3: every time I think about those kids it gets me mad
6: and by the way it happens on the streets of Chicago every day
1: Yes, it does, Mr. President. Yes, it does happen on the streets of Chicago uh, every day in one of the highest regulated um, uh, cities and states in our nation when it comes to uh, guns and gun control. Um, Let's just start and say this initially. Um, We need to think about foundations here and just make um, a, a remark about this simple fact that we as Christians get to grieve over... Uh, the victims of these mass shootings because of the worldview underneath us. Um, those are image bearers of God. We have an objective standard that exists outside of ourselves uh, at, with God as the reference point, and we have word from God, revelation from God, uh, through which we can actually claim certainty regarding what is good, what is true, what is lovely, what is moral. Um, and so we can, as Christians, listen closely, grieve. Over the loss of human life, we can shed tears as image bearers of God when image bearers of God murder other Mm. image bearers of God. That's a Christian foundation that we have. And so when a nation like ours, particularly with a president like this, has abandoned God and the word of God as the foundation of all of life, um, we lose the ability to, to, to tear up in a coherent way. Because if the world is as the world today wants to say it is, that we're all just the byproducts of an evolutionary process that did not have us in mind, then we don't really have a basis to truly grieve in a meaningful way when, it, when we talk about sh- the victims of shootings. Um, but can I just say this, and I want you guys to jump into the discussion here. One of the important things I think to talk about here is, is just the inconsistency of um, uh, our, our current time. Because we don't want God, but we want to grieve over these children and all these, over these people right. who die in these mass shootings. So we say, no to you, God. We don't want you. And, and we, we get into this crazy place, this disrupted place, where we can't make sense of any of our grief. Um, and, I, and I think it's interesting that he actually mentions Chicago here, mm-hmm. because he's trying to do executive action on gun control. Uh, and he mentions Chicago Chicago has some of the strictest gun laws in the nation, right. and it's not stopping the shootings. Right. And so the problem is fundamentally in the human heart. It's not in the gun, it's not in the weapon. More people die every year by homicide uh, through other means. Blunt objects, uh, knives, and and, and such. Yeah, all kinds of things. Yeah, and a hammer's fist. It's, it's not the weapon that we need to focus on. And as Christians, we've got to focus on the gospel in this area. It's an, listen, executive action on gun control is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not. Yeah. It really, it really is. So I will leave it to you. Yeah. Go ahead. Amen. <laughs> all right so you guys uh, i was waiting for our guest to comment yeah I'll let, I'll let dr dalcour you jump in you know
0: it's interesting, as you as you were speaking i i you, know, you can't you can't help looking at particularly within the christian church we understand why non-believers do what they do but when christians do not understand things like set foundation when they don't understand like I really like this passage in Hosea, I think it's Hosea 6.6, 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Too many people judge Christianity or moral or ethics based on the sacrifices, based on um, everything else, the burnt offerings or works or so on and so forth. And the knowledge of God is so secondary these days. And even as you were speaking about, um, Christian's having an actual set of foundation in the gospel and allowing the gospel to say what it says. And looking at God, the gospel, the scripture, as our authority. What did Augustine said? He said, if, I believe, if you believe what you like about the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel that you believe, but you believe in yourself. Mm. And as you mentioned, people have this self-authority, this auto-authority, in which they judge scripture and they, they love the things they like. They love the things that are conducive to the lifestyle in Scripture. But if you remember, Jeff, um, I mean, before 1962, I wasn't born, but uh, I know you're, you're younger than I am. But before 1962, some of these things that are so promoted today, like sodomy and, other, and homosexuality, sodomy was a felony in every single state, was mm. it not, before 1962? Yeah. Every single state, it was a felony. There was a time when this country stood unmovable against biblical offenses Such as homosexuality and abortion, and so on and so forth, even enacting laws against such practices. We call it an abomination, but today their evil is now tolerated. I call it a doctrine of tolerance in and without, in and outside the church. Yes. Which is recognized now as a cultural norm. Yes. You know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Marcus, uh, let me bring you in here for a second. Okay. One of the things that you had brought up to me the other day when the president went and uh, gave the executive action and, and gave the public speech.
5: And put cayenne pepper in his
1: eye? Uh, yeah, he was tearing up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned that the president had actually appealed to scripture at a particular point. Um, I, I don't remember what scripture it was. No, he
5: said, he said, uh, no love is this than one who lays down his life for his friends. Yeah, greater love
1: has no man than this than the man who lays down his yeah. life for his friends. Okay. And I said,
5: well, if you're going to take that Context about salvation. It's about salvation. If you're going to take it out of context, right, and use it for a, practical, if we're going to do that. Yeah, if we're going to do that. Well, I mean, there's practical application to that, of course. Yes. So, so the practical application would be actually taking a gun and defending your family and risking your life. But he used it in a way of an individual who dived in front of two bullets and took two bullets for someone to save their life uh, without a gun.
1: Yeah. All right. So that's, it's, just, it's, it's such a twisted, perver- it's just such a perversion. Yeah, it's what
5: you said. It's like he wants everybody to be victims. That's true love, is everybody to be, be a victim. A victim. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and we've done shows on this before, and we, we posted a few things the last couple of days on the issue, trying to bring it back to the gospel. And it, it took some heat from people who, who love Jesus, and um, I, I just don't think I've thought through this well enough. And uh, they've even adopted some of the quote-unquote, liberal narrative here. And um, listen, here's the issue. Romans chapter 3 says, there is none righteous, not even one, none who does good, none who seeks for God. It says, our feet are swift to shed blood. That is why you have mass shootings. It's not because the guns exist. Because here's the thing. Just do a Google search. Google this junk. Okay, Google this. Google uh, mass knifings. Mm. You take away the guns, and you're going to have someone pick up a knife, and they're going to do a mass knifing in mm. in China or at a school somewhere. Because the problem is in the human heart; it's not in the weapon. And as soon as murder you, is
5: going to murder, murder is
1: going <laughs> to murder. Right. And uh, so the the issue yeah. has to fundamentally be an issue of the of the gospel. And um, I do think there is an interesting uh, point to be made about the irony of the president of our nation, the president of the of these United States standing before the people of the United States uh, talking about uh, gun control um, in the nation in the nation where uh, early on it was the Black Robe Regimen Presbyterian and Baptist Pastors Uh, called in uh, England the Presbyterian Revolt. Uh, It's known as the Revolutionary War or the War for Independence. But in England, it was called the Presbyterian Revolt. And these pastors uh, would preach in their black Genevan gowns And as soon as they were done, they would take these robes off, grab their rifles, and they would go protect uh, family and country against um, a a people and a king that they believed had broken covenant with God and with them. Uh, And so it's interesting, isn't it? All of this talk, of gun control, United States of America, you've got all this. It came about because... Christians had a worldview that they can make sense of the context they were living in, and they believed that it was their uh, right, according to God, to defend themselves against tyranny and foreign invaders and enemies. Um, And it's really interesting because if you think about that time period that brought us to where we're at today, where we have a president speaking on executive action, um, if you think about that time period, you had those Christians that actually tried very very hard to work through essentially the reformed principles of warfare and that was that they tried to speak prophetically against what was going on first and foremost they tried to plead with the king and with England to beg for mercy and not for war and they waited until the very very last minute they even retreated a bit and tried to fall back Um, and and they said and this is one of the things said as um, that shot heard around the world happened when the past brought his church out to fight the British that day after Paul Revere's ride where he says the British are coming. Uh, Paul Revere went to the house of a pastor who was mentoring uh, Sam Adams and John Hancock, correct? Is that the two I, believe, guys? I believe so, yes. They were at his house that night. Paul Revere goes to this pastor's house because his pastor mentored these men and said, you know, are your men ready? And the pastor said, I've been preparing them for just a moment, just like this. They went and they ran, rang the church bells. The church comes in. They said, hey, they're coming. We need to defend ourselves. The pastor said, you are not to fire. God will not bless an offensive war. He will bless a defensive war. And so that shot heard around the world was these pa- this pastor and his church, his congregation, essentially waiting for that first shot to go because they believed in defense. They weren't saying, pick up your guns and let's just start fighting and, and having a war. They were saying, defense, 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 protect yourselves. And finally it broke out. But it's interesting that we have a president tearing up over this issue. Apart from the biblical worldview, with no coherent foundation, and ultimately in his ideas, militating against the biblical worldview. So, um, we got a great show planned for you guys. We're going to come back with a brand new segment with uh, Randy, and it's called uh, what we what what do we call it? No public radio. Not public radio. Not public radio. It's our it's our NPR segment with Randy called Not Public Radio. You're going to get updated news reports on Apologia Radio on a regular basis with our boy Steady Randy, not Public Radio, Radio ApologiaRadio.com, right back with Dr. Edward Dalcor.
3: Hi, I'm Les. And I'm Tanner. And we're the hosts of the Reformed Pubcast a weekly podcast where two friends get together and talk about the things that they love.
1: It's like all those times
3: you talked about theology over a pint of beer with your friends, but we're just dumb enough to record it. It's the theology of Calvin and the thirst of Luther. Join in on the
1: conversation by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. It's the Reformed Pubcast.
2: Welcome to Apologia Radio's Not Public Radio. It is the first week of the year of our Lord, 2016. The date, October 21st, 2015, was recently in focus because of the movie Back to the Future Part 2. In this movie, Marty McFly travels in time to 2015 to save his future children who were unborn at the time of the original Back to the Future. Congressional Republicans (laughs) seem to be confused by the sense of urgency in the plot, with Speaker of the House Paul Ryan saying, "Yes, we watched all nine videos, but if government can seize their time machine, we can always go back in time to save unborn children in a future congressional budget session."
5: <laughs> wait, 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 wait! Did that really happen? That was really said. Wait, that was really—that's real. That's a real story. I didn't hear that. Somebody actually said. That
3: I believe Paul Ryan might have said it. Paul
5: Ryan said, hey, don't worry about it, because we'll invent a time machine and just go back in time and fix it. We, we are a proponent of sarcasm on the show, yes.
3: Oh, okay.
1: Okay. Yes. okay. okay.
2: okay.
1: <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. All I know is that this segment is delicious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I want to keep going.
2: Okay, there was there was no truth to the rumor that, uh, uh, that a fourth installment titled Right Behind featuring uh, Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye as time travelers going back to help the Apostle John write his letters more carefully to include such things as a prophecy
1: for the Jewish temple to be rebuilt. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Oh, this is some deeply theological nerdness.
5: I just feel more educated now. Yes,
1: yes, it's wonderful. This is good stuff, Randy. Uh, And and if you guys have no idea what um, Randy from NPR is uh, talking about, uh, Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, um, uh, proponents of the eschatological view uh, known as dispensational premillennialism, the idea that there's going to be a secret rapture, seven years of tribulation, all those sorts of things, a rebuilt, Mm. a physical rebuilt temple. And can I say this? This is a theological discussion about this. Um, In terms of like a rebuilt temple, that would be good to talk about. That's a big item. That's a big ticket item. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to uh, trip out. When I would read the Jerusalem Post, and I held to this view, and I would see anything that signaled a rebuilding of the Jewish Temple today, yeah. I would—I mean, I read articles about they've got the Red Heifer, they've got the new Red Heifer, <laughs> and I would—you know oh, there's actually a group of Jews who are trying to reinstitute the priesthood. And they're trying to, to, to do all these things to rebuild. they got the cornerstone, and, and they're going to they're gonna build it. And I wonder when they're going to build it. It could be our generation. <laughs> and I used to be excited. Yeah. Think about this, how warped that is to be excited about the fact that they be, would rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrifices in the temple. Because mm-hmm. I thought that that signal, signaled the, the coming of Christ and the rapture. Yeah. But if you think about this real fast as, as believers, what is the book of Hebrews all about? It's about not going Back to right. that old system that is defunct. It is over. No, it's the, obsolete. no yeah, it's obsolete. Those old, uh, the old priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices. To go back to that, and here's the crazy thing: a lot of Christians, I think, well-meaning Christians, will see these things going on with the new temple and they get excited about it. But the truth is, is we need to tear our clothes in horror if the Jews rebuild the temple and start reinstituting animal sacrifices because it's in a direct affront to God, mm. it's saying to Jesus, right. you're not the Messiah, you're not the high priest, you're not the once and for all sacrifice. We need this temple. We need the sacrifices. The, the thing that we should be shouting to the Jews when they talk about rebuilding the temple is, don't you dare. Right. Jesus is Mashiach. He is the promised Messiah. So, um, yeah, anybody else got anything they want to throw in there? I'm ready
5: for more. Do you got any
3: this, more? This is, is, is great. It? I'm loving this.
5: Yes, a
2: little bit
3: more here. (laughs) All right.
2: Mike Rowe, host of the TV series Dirty Jobs and Somebody's Got to Do It, on Wednesday... I love that
5: show. Yeah. That's great.
2: On Wednesday, declared he's not the guy who did it, after police in Medford, Oregon, said tipsters had identified him from a bank robbery surveillance picture. Rowe strongly resembles pictures of the robber released by police, so much so that the department joked on its Facebook page Tuesday that, thanks to you guys we issued an arrest warrant for Mike Rowe from the TV show Dirty Jobs. The police post adds, but in the case it's not him, keep your eye out and keep the tips
5: coming.
3: <laughs> That's cool.
5: It's always funny when uh, a police department pretends to frame somebody. Is it, is it, possible, <laughs> it's really great. Is
3: it possible that they looked at the a picture of Mike Rowe and then drew the picture? I
5: planted evidence.
2: <laughs> Mike thought that the robber might be wearing a Mike Rowe mask. Crazy as it sounds, these masks exist, Roe wrote. I don't know where people get them, but a couple of years ago, I ran into a woman at a Halloween party who was wearing my face, and I don't mind telling you, it scared the hell out of me. (laughs) That's great. A different type of microaggression was in focus this past year. The term microaggression was used, or shall we say, appropriated, by Columbia professor Derald Sue to refer to brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults toward people of color. The definition of such offenses was expanded last year to include Beatlemania, and on one college campus, the serving of General So's chicken with an incorrect sauce caused outrage. With one student noting, "If people not from that heritage take food, modify, and serve it as authentic, it is
5: appropriative." <laughs> uh, I Mike, feel I feel like the whole style of NPR is a microaggression. It is a
1: microaggression. <laughs> microaggression. Yeah, that's that's funny. Hey, just real fast on it's General Tao's chicken. Uh, there's a Netflix documentary on general tao's It's a whole documentary on this this general Tso's chicken you know what that is right
3: yeah isn't it cat
1: <laughs> it's the most popular chicken dish that That's you can authentic. find in every chinese restaurant across the nation i think i just committed microaggression i watched this entire like hour and a half long <clears> documentary about general tao's chicken and the wow. origins of general Tso's chicken in america you time for that and let me just tell you this it was like late one. it was late one one evening and I'll tell you what I did. I watched the thing, and then I was like, oh, you need to find the most authentic General Tao's chicken. So I do, like, Google searching around, and there's, like, serious battles. Like, people throw down about, like, what is legitimate General Tao's chicken. And I found a place in Phoenix that serves legit General Tao's chicken, and we drove to North Phoenix because I watched the episode and it made me hungry. Was it, was it worth it. the trip? It was worth the trip. It was very good. Mm. There's another one on, on uh, Netflix right now. It's about steak and it's about finding the world's best steak and it was one of the most fascinating documentaries i've ever watched and it's about from like the cow to the plate find the how you have to find the best cow to the plate and let me just tell you i was starving i'm ready for lunch now after i watched that <laughs> sounds so, like it sounds Marcus like i'd be, I'd be repulsed i'd be repulsed. by you would, that you would you so, would be repulsed did by you, it. did you find the best steak um well not in t- i haven't find about be- i didn't find the best steak in town but i'll tell you it's fascinating what they do to these cows. In Japan, they have the Kobe beef. Like the, kill them? Right. Well, they have the Kobe beef, and they're, they're delicious. They have the Kobe beef in yes, Japan. Marcus. And you know what they do with these things? And it's delicious. They massage them with sake. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so me. they put sake on and massage them with sake. And this one guy in Japan, he plays classical Beethoven 24 hours a day for these cows just so they get enough, like, they're just calm and they get nice and, you know, <laughs> nice and juicy. And uh, so nice and tender, massage them and, him yeah, and co- Kobe beef. Wow, yeah. yeah, fascinating. Hey, can I ask a question? I still don't understand what microaggression is. It's, it's small. a microaggression. It's small. It's, it's small. a small aggression. <laughs> it's, not, it's not as powerful. It's not such a big aggression. So, like, uh, Cy, Ten Kate in debate with atheists, he would be more like an overt macroaggression, <laughs> right? <laughs> he just goes right for him. <laughs> microaggression would be maybe like a William Lane Craig. He's more of a microaggression. <laughs> not, not, not quite so aggressive. All right. Uh, next, please.
2: All right. Back in 1993, the musician Prince changed his stage name to an unpronounceable symbol, which was explained as a combination of the glyphs for male and female. Because Prince no longer referred to be known by a name, he became commonly referred to as the artist formerly known as Prince. Bad move. Later, when he changed his naming preference back, he was sometimes called the artist formerly known as the artist artist formerly known as Prince. That's <laughs> yeah. Easy for me to say.
1: <laughs> what stu- listen, what a stupid move. Well, it's
5: like P. Diddy. Diddy.
1: Yeah. Puff yeah. Daddy. Yeah. Well, like, seriously, what a stupid move. If you, if you make a brand for yourself, you can't, like, 20 years later, change it to a symbol that has no word. Right. It's that, <laughs> hey, ah. hey, hey, there's a concert with that thing this weekend. The thing. Well, you know, the thing? I mean, it's just such a weird thing. What a bad move.
3: We're going to change our name to just our symbol. Yeah. We'll be the show formerly known as Apology Radio. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, another symbol combining the idea of male and female is, well, in order to avoid committing a microaggression, I'll say the athlete formerly known as Bruce. (laughs) 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 The athlete formerly known as Bruce has announced that he regrets becoming a female and wants to be a man again. In other words, he wants to become the athlete formerly known as the athlete formerly known as Bruce.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, Randy, is this for real? Yes. He really regrets becoming a woman?
2: Yes. Yes. Why have I not heard this?
1: It's Apology News. Are you sure? It's it's only heard on NPR. It's exclusive (laughs) here. Wow.
2: So yes, to be clear, the the, uh, Paul Ryan comment was parody and sarcasm. Yes. Michael Rowe, bank robber, true. Okay. Alright, and the man formerly known the athlete formerly known as Bruce. True. Oh wow. are, are you are you sure you're not getting that from like a junk news site? Well, it appears there too, for obvious reasons.
5: <coughs> okay. Okay.
1: <laughs> that was a microaggression.
5: <laughs> that was certainly that a microaggression. Oh, it's a lot a lot of a lot of tension. I like I like having the viewers have to figure out if it's true or not. Yes. That, that sounds like what you have to do on like most any other radio program.
1: Apologia radio is <laughs> Becoming like the onion. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay.
2: Reporters were told, I'm going to be honest. I regret my transformation. I have no idea what I'm doing. I miss being a man. I still like uh, well, we'll say lady parts.
1: Lady bits.
3: Lady bits. Lady bits. Lady bits. Lady bits. He misses his man parts. Yeah.
2: This reminds us of ABC News editor Don Ennis, who thought he was a woman trapped in a man's body and left his wife of 17 years, Wendy, to become a full-time woman to become Don, D-A-W-N. After he went through his transition, he changed his mind, explaining his shock after he woke up from what he called transient global amnesia and said, it turns out he's just another boring straight guy, which I take offense to.
1: (laughs) That was a (laughs) microaggression. (laughs) <laughs> Whoa, wow, 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 wow. Oh, man, this that is, is, is such, an, such an awful, awful thing. So, okay, in the last year, we've dealt well, with uh, a couple of things. We dealt with uh, the athlete formerly known as Bruce Jenner, um, a grandfather mm-hmm. mutilating his body, uh, pretending to be a woman, and uh, on the cover of magazines, Vanity Fair, and uh, news reports. I mean, the world went nuts, um, and it broke the Internet. Um so that was uh, Bruce Jenner. And then we also had Rachel Dolezal, um, who is a, a white woman uh, who, claimed, who claimed to be black, and it came out that she really wasn't black, and so she said that she was black, and uh, took a lot of heat for that. And so we also have recently, more recently, the article of the, I think he's 57-year-old man, who who wants to live as a six-year-old girl or a seven-year-old girl? He's been a, a quote-unquote adopted by a family uh, who lets him live with them as a six-year-old girl. Interestingly, he actually uh, he, where uh, he actually uses a pacifier, which most six-year-old girls right. don't do, but he does. Does he like techno? Uh, he he may like techno. That's where he got it. He, was oh, just, okay. he walked out of a rave. I um, believe I believe Puddles called this. Puddles did call it. That is actually we haven't talked about that on this show. It was weird, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, so last year, we were, I was doing a conference in San Diego, and while we were there, uh, we wanted to do some on-the-street um, interviews. Luke dressed up like Puddles the dog. Uh, this is right around Jenner. It's right around Rachel Dolezal. Luke dressed up like Puddles the dog, and he went around asking people on the street um, if he believed he was a dog, dressed like a dog, does that make him a dog? And uh, obviously, you guys know what we're getting at, because then we then moved the conversation. Luke asked about uh what if somebody was a man wanted to pretend like be a woman and then they would say oh well yes yeah. Yeah, well then in that case yes um but I, we were talking before one yeah. interview and i we said let's get as crazy as possible yeah. i said make it as crazy as possible and we just <laughs> invented some crazy out there i said like I, i'm a i'm a man 50 year old man and i want to be a 7 year old girl yeah. and, and and luke so luke asked the question
3: yeah and then they were like no 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 no, no.
1: no. Because you're still a man. Yeah, and then right. here we go. The year opens up now. and We're looking back at uh, an actual example of a man doing just
5: that. Mm. You heard it first on uh, Apologia Radio. That's right. Mm.
1: That's right. It's true. All right. So that was Apologia Radio's not public radio. And it was amazing. And it was amazing.
5: Oh, that was way better than I ever thought it was going to be. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm
2: so excited for more. Well, there's still mysteries. Like, you know, (laughs) did uh, the athlete formerly known as Bruce ever wear a micro mask for Halloween? Mm. (laughs) 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 Perhaps the next episode. (laughs) Perhaps
5: the next episode.
1: (laughs) You heard it only here on Apologia Radio's not public radio. All right, guys. Quick break. We'll be right back with more. Don't forget, ApologiaRadio.com is where you get us, get all the past episodes, and... It's where you can sign up for all access where you can partner with Apologia Church to get the gospel into the culture and you get all the additional content. It's a $7.95 donation every month and you get the Apologia TV show, the after show. You get Apologia Academy. By the way, we just dropped a new one. It was one of my favorite ones to teach. Apologia Academy on apologetics. And the next one going up? James White. James White. It was in studio and he taught on Mormonism and so that's coming soon. You guys can all you can get all that content, ApologiaRadio.com. Sign up for the all-access. You're partnering with our church to, to do what we're doing now and more. And you get all the additional content we want to bless you guys with. Thank you guys so much for all of you guys who are already all-access. Thank you for the encouragement. I, uh, you guys are telling us you love it and it's blessing your life, and that blesses us. So ApologiaRadio.com. Be right back. Welcome back to Apologia Radio.
5: He still really is the greatest artist of all time, isn't he? I mean, like, he's. Very talented. I mean, that music is still amazing. Like, I heard it the first time.
1: Very talented. So, um, (laughs) we have so much to talk about. Eddie's in the back laughing there. He's like, wait, is that satire too? (laughs) Um, We have so much to talk about. Um, I wanted to bring uh, Dr. Delcour on to talk about um, uh, the. We haven't done a show, like, specifically on. Uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract mm-hmm. Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and I'm sure uh, many of you guys have had um, uh, an encounter with a Jehovah's Witness at some point in your life. Uh, either they've knocked at your door at 7.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning, or maybe you've run into them at a mall. Or do you know what, Luke? Where they always set up is at that Asian market that we really? we, we get fought at. They huh. set up right there in the front all the time. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting, yeah. <laughs> so Jehovah's Witnesses... Uh, in in Arizona, I'll look, I mean, at least to let you guys know the context of where we live. Uh, when I first came here, not a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I think around the year two thousand and four, two thousand and five, uh, it seems like there was a huge push with Jehovah's Witnesses setting up wards in the East Valley and around the area, and so mm. it seems like there's been really an increase since two thousand and four, two thousand and five in the Metro Phoenix area of Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not sure what it's like in your area. Um, I actually
3: I, just saw the other day. I was driving through Chandler, and there's a like Kingdom Hall. I was, I think it was Saturday after the abortion mill. I drove by and I saw a bunch of guys in suits leaving.
5: Wait, thinking, which, which, are which are Mormons boom, and Jehovah's Witnesses like rival football teams? Yes.
0: <laughs> like do they I they, actually they have, are? I actually have they, a story. They, about they both look at each other as cults. Yes.
1: as cults. Yes. They uh,
3: <laughs> no. I sometimes uh, if I'm like either one of them, if I'm having a discussion with them, if I get to the point where like, the discussion's over, you know, they don't want to answer any more questions, then I'll just say, like, I say it's a Jehovah's Witness, I'll be like, what's up with you and the Mormons? And, like, their countenance will completely change. And they, like,
0: hate each other.
1: It's interesting. <laughs> I have always wanted awesome. Go ahead, Eddie.
0: No, I was going to say, the, the main difference in terms of how they look, Jehovah's Witnesses, you can, always, you can always detect the Jehovah's Witness because, for the men, the belts never match the shoes in color. They're always mismatched.
3: <laughs> yeah, I noticed that
0: across the board.
3: That's interesting. (laughs) I was at Chandler in Arizona, by the way. Okay, okay. But I was thinking we should
1: go set up sometime when they're getting out. Because they're all walking down the street. That would be cool, man. I'd like to do that. You know, I, I think we've talked about this before, Luke. I would like to see a conversation take place between a Jehovah's Witness and a Mormon. That would be fascinating. That
3: would need to be filmed. Yeah, that would be
1: really fascinating. i <laughs> be like a celebrity death match. Never seen anything like that before in my life, and I, that would be really, really tremendous. Um,
5: where, where, where the outcome doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kansas, quote, pastor comes out during a sermon. This is from uh, ministrymatters.com. A United Methodist pastor came out to her Kansas congregation during a Janu- January 3rd sermon in this year's first public action aimed at influence in the 2016 General Conference. Um, her announcement comes as United Methodists across the theological spectrum are gearing up for the denomination's top lawmaking assembly, where the church's stance on homosexuality usually tops the controversy list. The Book of Discipline. The denomination's book of policy and teaching since 1972 has proclaimed that all individuals are of sacred worth, but the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Church law lists being a self-avowed practicing gay clergy member and officiating at same-sex unions among the denomination's chargeable offenses. So this is Reverend, quote, unquote, (laughs) Reverend Cynthia Meyer, um, this is the sec- section where she actually comes out. I want to say this. I got the first link and it said uh, full sermon, and I was like, oh no, I gotta listen to, <laughs> I, I gotta listen to, thing. I gotta listen to 40 minutes of this woman doing this, and it was a 16-minute yeah. sermon. Interesting. <laughs> that's not how uh, not, we Puritans. Not apologies. That's not how we Puritans do things. Um, Reverend Cynthia Meyer coming out to her congregation, and let me just start this by saying this, this. Is awful. When I sent it to Eddie, um, we both responded in the same way. Um, it was awful. It's awful. This woman occupied a pulpit, pretending to be a, a pastor, using the time to focus in upon herself. The whole thing is about her. Yeah, how great she how, is. Yeah, what good things she's done. Yeah, and um, it's just a disgrace. And let's just. Call a spade a spade. This is a wicked, wicked woman, and uh, this is one of the most wretched things I've ever seen and had to sit th- and had to sit through. Um, but I'll let you hear. Her. This is uh, Reverend Cynthia Meyer
7: to share my deep truth with you. It's time. I've been an ordained United Methodist pastor for 25 years. At last, I am choosing to serve in that role with full authenticity as my genuine self, as a woman who loves and shares my life with another woman. I remember...
1: So, there you go. There's the. I wonder if
5: anybody in that congregation was Ugh. like, I, "I knew we shouldn't have had a woman pastor."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> like, What's well, interesting? I mean, it's like, uh, okay, <laughs> like if I if I'm sitting in a church with a woman pastor and it happened, I would just say, "Yeah, this is about par for the
3: course." Uh-huh. If you if you read the article, it's there. They it talks about their response, how I think it was actually her and how she responded. Or said that the church responded. She's like, "Well, there nobody yelled out in anger or something like that." It was
1: like, <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's a, a good thing. That's a
0: win. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It was, it was. You know. You know. What fascinates me? It, it's what. What is frustrating to me? It's not that there's these kind of people out there that are preaching, that are leaders, that are professing these abominations, but for me, including the false teacher in the church who was teaching heresy. Man or woman. It's the people that just blindly, the people that absorb this and embrace it as truth. That's what really frustrates me, the people that follow these guys. Preach it. There's always going to be false teachers and and these kind of women, but the people, the vast amount of people that follow them is
1: just crazy. Yeah. And um, I think it's important that we recognize the different speeds we have to go. Okay? So, for example, if you read the book of Jude, there are some, let's just say, not so nice things said about false teachers and false prophets there. Um, you know, we have to handle the person who is next to us that might have questions and is willing to engage with us in a conversation. Um, maybe it's a person who was raised in the church, has had homosexual um, desires, and they're struggling. You know, I've sat with people just like that that are in tears in front of me saying, I've had these desires, and I know it uh, displeases God, and I want free from it. You know, you don't handle them in the same way that you handle (coughs) this wicked woman. Um, She's a woman pretending to be a follower of Jesus Christ, pretending to be a pastor, occupying a pulpit uh, that is supposed to be a Christian pulpit, and she is just spewing forth abominable things, and it is a wicked, awful thing. And so I think you need to handle false teachers like her uh, in a different way. Call a spade a spade, um, tell her what she is, call her to repentance. And um, I think the thing that was, I I mean, obviously I know this takes place. It's an awful thing. We need to preach into it and, and, and call people to repentance. But the thing that got me the most was the fact that this woman spent this whole time and she just talked about herself. Yeah. I mean, she used all this, you know, you know. Let me just uh, let me get let me play some audio here real fast. I want to hear more about what Eddie has to say here. But here's an example of when she's not talking about herself. Um, she just strings together this language, our authentic self, and children of light. And I'm gonna, I want you to hear this real fast. And I, th- I think I know where she got it from, but but I'll, I'll let you hear it.
7: It's time to follow the star. It's time to live in the light. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. The light shines on each of us. See, the light shines through each of us. Be radiant. It's time. It's <coughs>
5: Yeah, so, you know, she doesn't even sound like a good pastor. No, no that's no. the thing; is she's not even good. At what she does. <laughs> she's kind of like that's not you know you're not a really good well, order. I don't
0: I don't think she'd be as, as as authoritative if she didn't have if she didn't have the wavy voice.
1: Yeah. yeah, 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 that's true. You
0: gotta have the wavy voice to sound authoritative.
1: Yeah, and I think I was I was listening to it and I was like. Oh, it's just creepy to me. It's like such manipulation, I believe, of people and the, the language and authentic self and children of light. And I was thinking, I think I've heard that somewhere before. I think I know I'm where that's. child
3: of the universe.
1: <laughs>
3: With the glitter of my life, I travel through black velvet space, space and the space. gates of time. Time, time. I'm a star awoken <laughs> from the <its> sleep <laughs> by the longing cries. Of mankind's dreams. (laughs) Dreams of harmony, love, and a child of the universe.
1: So that was uh i remember it back from my like uh my days like going to raves and everything like like techno that's dj tauscher (laughs) from germany i was was gonna gonna say
3: the fact that you had heard that somewhere before was concerning to me (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: uh all right so let's handle it real fast um uh, Eddie, I want to hear more of your input. Uh, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Uh, how should we engage this woman and in, in what we're facing in our culture right now? Well, I th- well you know, it, Eddie. It, oh, Eddie. It, okay. It, it's, yes. Okay. Whatever. So there, yes. <laughs> oh.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> to me, you know, when uh, we expect this kind of behavior, of course, from non-believers, and we expect this kind of behavior from just from pagans who constantly. Catechon, you know, suppressing that truth that is obvious. We expect this, but when professing Christians endorse this, that is a real tragedy. I think one of the roles of the, the evangelist, one of the roles of the pastor, one of the roles of the teacher, is to, of course, equip their people to detect this kind of um, on these kind of particularly on these kind of moral sins that are so abominable to god because homosexuality was one of those few sins that was worthy of capital punishment yeah but it, it goes even beyond that i think just the christian church they're they're so tolerant because they're being taught to be tolerant um, they're being taught to be accepted because hey jesus never spoke out against this why should i you know that kind of theology yeah and I really put the ball in the hands of the the leaders and pastors, but we as evangelists and pastors and teachers, we really got to strive to, you know, induce to to people that scripture is authoritative, even in the places you don't like. And we need to teach, you know, in the, in the Reformation, there was all the solas, you know, against the the heresies of Rome, but there was also something called a concept of the Reformation called tota scriptura, meaning all of scripture should be taught. And that I think is what, so much is lacking today in the Christian church. It's not all being taught. But I agree with you, uh, Jeff, in terms of the person struggling is a totally different animal than the person who is practicing in a cavalier fashion, no compunction, with no idea that this is even a sin, just keeps suppressing and suppressing and suppressing the truth. Um, I think we handle both parties differently. She preaches this publicly. She should be refuted publicly. Yes. Um, I don't see her as a as a scripture defines someone like that, not as a saved person. So we need to treat heresy as heresy. I think what a lot of folks don't understand is that virtually, as as you know, Jeff, virtually every letter of Paul's was designed to bring a refutation to a false teaching. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, we do this today, we just get ridiculed for our demanding of precision. Do we not?
1: Right. But yet
0: the Holy Spirit found it necessary in virtually in every book to refute a particular heresy, and to equip the church. And listen, when Paul wrote to the Colossians, or when 1st uh, and 2nd John was, when he wrote against the, the Protonostics, they weren't pointing out all the good things that they did. But specifically, they were pointing out the heresies that damaged people. A promotion of homosexuality in this way, women behind the pulpit, all these things, this is damaging people. It doesn't matter the good things she says. It, you know every false teacher I think the goal of a false teacher one of the goals is to impart as much truth as possible because then they're more genuine to the the uncritical mass That's most Christians point. seem to me they're uncritical when they when they listen to these folks yeah. but uh, we need to really in uh, do our jobs as evangelists as teachers pastors and um, you know just strive to make that effort to show people that scripture has to be of authority. All of Scripture, Tota, Scripture, has to be the authority on these issues.
2: Amen. So when we're talking about the the Methodists, there is a Wesleyan quadrilateral, which they believe is the basis of their theological and doctrinal development. So those four pillars are Scripture, Reason, Tradition, and Experience. Mm, So once you introduce experience into one of your pillars, isn't this kind of a natural outcome of where things go?
1: That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and if, if, if at any point, because the same thing happens with, with, uh, with Mormons. They yeah. have sort of the same, they, right. they, have, they have what we believe scripture, kind of, because we also have the teachings of our modern day prophets. And we also have, it feels right, I had an experience, I had a burning in my bosom, and that's how I know it's true. And that gets us to the point, the deep point, the bottom line foundational point of epistemology. How do you know whether or not something is good, true, lovely, holy? How do you know anything? And so for the Reformed person, the Christian that says, well, sola scriptura, it's the word of God that is a sole infallible rule of faith and practice, we go there we say the certainty is found in God's word. Now, we, we may disagree with one another. We may have uh, in-house internal disagreements with each other, but we surround one revelation that we all say that's the defining standard. And so let's have our fight. Let's have our argument. But let's have it not with our own experience and traditions, but with the word of God as supreme. Now, as soon as you introduce what the Mormon has, what apparently, this woman has of experience into it. Now you've got two, tradition, two two standards running alongside one another. And what happens is, is when you have two ultimate authorities, one authority ends up eating up the other one. And what do you think a sinner is going to do Uh, when the Bible says our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? What do you think a sinner with a heart like that is going to do when they have two traditions, the Word of God and experience, running alongside one another? When their experience conflicts with the Word of God, they don't bend to the Word of God. They always bend towards their experience. It feels right to me. It tastes good. It looks good. And so they go to their experience. So this is really, this is very important. This comes down to the thing you're constantly going to face in apologetics encounters. It's always about ultimate authorities. It's always about the word of God is supreme. When you're talking to the Roman Catholic, what is the problem? It's the word of God versus the, the divine deposit, the tradition of Rome. When you're talking to the Mormon, what is it? It's the word of God versus the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith's sermons, and those sorts of things. When you're talking to the Jehovah's Witness, it's the word of God versus the watchtower. And so that's why there was the reformed catch cry sola scriptura the reformers mm-hmm. recognized that this is a question of epistemology and how do you know and they knew that it all rested in a place that it rested for jesus for the apostles uh when they would always point back to what do the scriptures say right the word of god's the standard and you know you hear this a lot right eddie you hear these these people today right. Uh, the, that occupy these pulpits and are trying to subvert their own denominations, um, laws, uh, when they say things like, well, the, the, they say this a lot. This is one of the things you hear. They'll say, the Holy Spirit is still speaking today. <laughs> they, they say that a lot. The Holy Spirit is, still speaks today. And what that tends to mean is is not that God is giving new revelation, but through personal experience, we know that people are this, and God made us this way, and they'll say, my homosexuality is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit still mm-hmm. speaks today, and my homosexuality is a gift from God. You need to be willing to to weigh what the Scriptures say with our experience and knowledge today. And and that's, right, right. that's, a, that's a big apologetic question. How do you know? Right. How do you know? And so, Eddie? Right.
0: No, absolutely. Um, Look, I have a lot of charismatic friends, and uh, the biggest challenge for me is uh, to come and somehow come against their charismatic view that tells them some kind of false doctrine is true. I'll never win against that tradition, against that emotion, even though I, I can show them passage after passage. And these are, as I see, a lot of these people are Christians. But tradition is so utterly strong, even though, even though, though the Lord said in Proverbs, what is it, twenty-eight, twenty-six? Only a full trusts his feelings, mm. right? Only a full trusts his heart. Uh, and of course, with the Mormons, it's somewhat spiritually different, but it's the same outcome. They're trusting their emotions. Of course, their you know their emotions dictate that Joseph Smith's the prophet, right. and so on and so forth. But um, you know, and in Rome too, um, which you know, they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, that they they have a system of et, uh, Latin for and, um, the church and God, Mary, Jesus for redemption, prayer is to Mary and God, worship is to God and Mary, and it goes on and on with this system of ands, faith and words, and we have a system of one, you know, solus Christos, that's Paul's thesis in uh, Romans chapter 5. By the one man, by the one sacrifice, by the one righteous act, transfers to Hebrews the the afapax, the once for all. You know, he's our eternal priest. The one, uh, by the one for all sacrifice, we have that term uh, over and over that establishes the 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 one of of Solus Christos, and that's why we hold to that as Christ alone as the means of our salvation, because it's not. Based upon how we're feeling, or based upon script um, uh, emotion or emotive responses, like these people. But it's very difficult to come against or to challenge someone's tradition emotion. You Not know many people. I was. I spoke at a church in, in Texas, Crosby, Texas, and uh, during question and answer, you know, I got. I can tell it was a very eclectic church because one guy asked me if I see one as Pentecostals in the same light as Jehovah's Witness. Wow. And the pastor's wife's father is a one of Pentecostals. Oh, wow. But I answered this and so forth. But afterwards, I, I went down and I had a long line of people wanting to ask questions. And I've got, I got questions from, hey, what's a good apologetic book? To, hey, I had this dream last night. And he expressed his dream. Can you interpret that for me?
1: Uh, he was upset
0: because uh-huh. my view was against dreams and all these things. He got very upset, just walked away. But that's what you get when there's no definitive position. You know, that's what you get. You get emotions dictating what Scripture says. That's right. That's and that's right. what you get over and over.
1: Well, we're going to have a conversation next segment. We're going to talk about uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, Jehovah's Witnesses. I am so excited to have you guys ha- get the opportunity to listen to Dr. Dalcour on this subject. Um, I think I said this before, and uh, I-, I-, I want you guys to-, to pay attention to this, if you would, Um Dr. Delcor, to my mind, is one of the sharpest, most brilliant uh, modern uh, theologians and apologists. And um, I think one of the main reasons many people don't know about you, uh, Dr. delcor, is your website. Man, we've got to get that thing fixed up. We've got to get it, like, modernized and, and, and get your teachings so that they're accessible to more people. Because... Um, you've, been a real, you've been a real gift to me, and uh, I mean that. And uh, if you guys go to Dr. Dalcor's website um, and you just look through some of the articles, he's done public debates and things like that, really get in and, and get, get some of the, the content from Dr. Dalcor because I think you'll be blessed by it. It'll help you, encourage you, equip you as a believer. Um, but, and I want, I'm really excited to have you here. What's uh, the website? Eddie, it's uh, ChristianDefense.org, right?
0: Department right, christiandefense.org
1: Christian right. org. it's the Department of Christian Defense is, is the name of the ministry um, So we'll be right back guys, right. more with uh, Dr. Dalcour right here on Apologia Radio ApologiaRadio.com guys, grab an episode and uh, share it with someone you know, guys. Let them know about Apologia Radio. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Also, we're going to try to read more of your comments this year on Apologia Radio from the iTunes page. So if you go to subscribe to us, leave a comment and rate us there. And uh, we'll try to read your comments uh, this year on the radio program. Um, And let's get right into it. So... um, We've done a lot of shows on Mormonism, on atheism, on secular thought. We've engaged the world on the issue of abortion. Uh, We just have a wide spectrum. And uh, by the way, there's I think over 150 shows in our archive at ApologiaRadio.com with some great guests, some great topics, but we've never actually spent a lot of time really addressing um, the issue of uh, the Watchtower. And so... I want to get right into it. And uh, Dr. Delcour, I just want you to take over right now and teach us what do we need to understand when engaging Jehovah's Witnesses? What do they believe? What do we do?
6: Well, I think first and foremost, we have to understand where they not agree with us in peripheral theology. But we have to understand the main doctrines that they, uh, that they actually reject, excluding them from Christianity. Um, Some of the main doctrines, again, we're talking about a a vast organization, but some of the main uh, essential theologies that they would disagree with and reject is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, and of course, they would reject also the deity of Christ. Naturally, because they reject the concept, the doctrine of the Trinity, what I found dealing with the Trinity and Jehovah's Witnesses and many Oneness Pentecostals and many Unitarians, Muslims included, is that... They don't really have an idea, a an accurate idea, as to what the doctrine of the Trinity actually teaches. Um, too many Christians want to rush passages about the Trinity to Jehovah's Witness and bombard them with passages. That's a mistake because you just, number one, you're not estimating the, uh, the power of the gospel because you're going way too fast. You think you have to bombard them with passages. And also, you have to understand that when you do that, you're not getting to their main fundamental assertion that the Trinity means three gods, and you have to deal with that first. And also they reject the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. They think the Holy Spirit was a, uh, a force, uh, God's active, Jehovah's active force, that does his bidding. Um, the Holy Spirit is not a person, He's not God, but yet he is with God. It's confusing at that point. But they deny the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. They assert the Holy Spirit to be likened to electricity, right? And they'll use passages that show the, you know, the wide range of the spirits, actually, we would say omnipresence. But they look at that as a non-personal kind of thing, not a person, but a thing. Um, unfortunately there's too many charismatics that look at the Holy Spirit in the same way mm. as some kind of force that yeah. they throw at you. Oh, very good. But also they deny the uh the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though they will use the term resurrection, even though in their kingdom in a linear, which is a you know, it's interesting they go they do appeal to their Greek text. It's a Westcotton Hort upon which the New World Translation was was based. Um, all the terms translated resurrection or the main terms, anesthesis, really denotes a resuscitation of a dead body. But even though they will reject the physical resurrection of Christ, they think that Jesus's body is gone forever. It either evaporated with the gases or Jehovah is hiding it for some undisclosed purpose. (laughs) They also reject, of course, um uh soteriological issues like they reject justification through faith alone Mm -hmm. which they probably and listen to this they probably i think of all the doctrines they reject they have the weakest apologetics for justification they don't have a lot of passages to defeat justification through faith alone saved by grace alone they are just not schooled like they are on rejecting the trinity the the, uh, deity of christ and the holy spirit to equip um the argue, against the arguments of justification through faith alone. So I always admonish Christians, use it, you know, use that. And also they reject any concept of God's wrath for the unregenerate. They I don't t- have that a mean? concept That's of hell. They deny it flat mm-hmm. out. So those are some of the main doctrines that they reject. And one of the most important doctrines is the Trinity and justification through faith alone.
1: Okay, Dr. Dalcor, how did they start? That would be something that I think we should talk about Um how, this, this is a, a newer cult in uh, the context of church history. And so how did this thing get off the ground? Well, it goes
6: back to the 19th, you know, the, the, the 19th century. Keep in mind, Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, he went through a series of other churches. He was a Seventh-day Adventist for a while, probably where he got the doctrine of, uh, of um, annihilationism from them, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, okay. deny uh, hell. Also, he probably got borrowed the doctrine that Jesus is Michael the Archangel from the Seventh day Adventists, but I want to qualify that because the Seventh day Adventists do not believe that Jesus is created Michael the Archangel. The Jehovah Witnesses believe he's created Michael the Archangel. There yes. is a qualitative difference.
1: Because in history there are some some Christians who have who have called uh, Christ in in in, a, in an Orthodox sense, Michael, Michael the Archangel, uh, Jesus, who is uh, who is like God, the chief messenger of God, and and so they would use it. And is that the context that we're talking about, where they would? Yeah, I think okay. John,
6: I think John Gill um, holds to that. Yeah, um, I think and yeah. Calvin was a little, he vacillated on that. Yeah, at first he somewhat asserted it in Daniel, and then he changed his view. But uh, yeah, but all these men have one thing in common: they believe Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, eternal right. God, yes. Um, just titled Michael, yes. You know, it's similar to the argument eternal generation uh, against the non-sonship, eternal sonship doctrine. Both sure. assert the eternality of the Son. That's or or the person of the Son, you know. But um, yeah, so similar to that, there has there are Christians uh, historically and contemporarily that hold to that view that Jesus by title is michael the archangel mm-hmm. and so they started out as a uh, inter- i think they were called international bible stu- uh stu- international bible students and that just grew from there charles taves russell grew um his group grew and he died and uh judge rutherford took it over and then you started getting into the doctrines like 144,000, all these things keep in mind charles taves russell did not hold to a lot of the similar to mormonism charles um Charles T. Russell did not hold to a lot of modern, essential views of the Jehovah's Witnesses, like 144,000, all these things. And also, um, when I said similar to Joseph, because in the Book of Mormon, as you know, you don't find polytheism, you don't find celestial marriages, you don't find any of these kind of essential LDS doctrines, same with the Watchtower. But they believe that their uh, doctrine is progressive and their prophets are infallible and their governing body is infallible even though they say they're not, they're not like prophets. But when you read their literature on these kind of issues, they see their governing body like Ezekiel or Jeremiah as a prophet.
1: Yes. How do they feel, Dr. Dalcour, how do they feel uh, today? If you talk to the average Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door, how do they feel about Charles Taze Russell or Judge Rutherford today? So if you were to bring up quotations from Russell or Rutherford um, the early founders of the Watchtower, um, would, would they say, oh, right, I need to handle that? Or, or do, do they become combative in your experience because they don't really – they'll say, I don't believe that's a prophet?
6: Uh, two responses. A lot of – and keep in mind, most of the time they don't get challenged on that by people at the doorstep. Even Christians just tend to close the door on them. But when they are challenged with that, they will either use the excuses that they're not – you know, infallible, even though they asserted in Watchtower literature that they are. Um, they were just men. You know, they they've used that excuse. Um, you know, they weren't in, infallibly inspired. They use that excuse. Um, or some will defend the position and they will call out uh, your information in question. They'll say you have bad information. That's not true. Okay. So that's why, you know, as if you're going to go that route as a Christian, make sure you have um, Watchtower literature and not anti-Jehovah Witness literature written by a Christian group, or they won't res- they, they won't respond it. to that at all. It'll just upset them.
1: Yes, and Jehovah's Witnesses are definitely people of the text. So what I mean by that is, um, when we witness to them and talk to them and, and say you throw um, a difficult passage um, their way and they, you force them to deal with it, they'll oftentimes open up their reference materials right there on the spot. And instead of trying to engage with you and, and really actually trying to reason through that scripture, they will literally read word for word what the Watchtower's right. references say uh, to that to that question or on that passage. Um, and so, uh, you know, with, with that, what do you think—and we know it's the Word of God that's going to open their eyes. It's the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. But what do we need to, to consider in terms of their commitment to their— um, organizations' literature as gospel. Uh, what do we need to consider when we're engaging with them, and they begin pulling out their references from their from their sources? Well, how do we do this?
6: Well, I, I would suggest you, you know it's really interesting because you're you're absolutely right. I've seen Jehovah's Witnesses dealing with John one one. They'll open up reasoning from the, the scriptures, one of their textbooks, and they will read you a whole uh, a page dealing with the predicate non- nominative and arthrous. Uh, noun. And they'll use those terms not knowing, having any idea what an anarthrous predicate nominative actually is. <laughs> they don't know what it just is. Reading. Yeah. Huh? They don't know what it is. No, but, and they think by reading this, they just answered you. Yes. Right. And I always ask them, well, what is a predicate nominative anarthrous noun? What is it? You know, they, it, it doesn't really say what it is in their book, so they're yeah. stuck at that point. Yeah. But on the other end, here's the problem I've seen Christians will. You know, a lot, of, a lot of excited Christians will learn what that is, that, that particular Cobalt construction is, and they will try to use Greek way over their head, and they will try to respond with Greek rules and grammatical structures. And I always say, I think that's a mistake with the average Jehovah's Witness, because he's, first of all, he's not going to believe you. And secondly, most of them have no idea you know, they don't know the difference between a Greek word or a French word, even though they have a kingdom in a linear. So dealing with, like, John chapter 1, you know, you got to go by the prologue. The English does a really good job. I mean, I can exegete John 1, 1 in the Greek text and show you how an agod translation is not going to work in light of the emphatic, you know, theos and so on and so forth. But the prologue itself from 1 to 18 says clearly, not only was he God, but in chapter three it says he's the creator of all things. In chapter or in, ver, in verse three in verse four it says in him was life and this life was a light of, of men and in verse 10 it goes down it says he's the creator of all things In verse 14 he became flesh in verse 18, by the way, their translation remains the same as ours. No one's ever seen God except the only begotten God who's at the Father's bosom. That's how it reads in the New World Translation. So when you put all of those verses together, now we have a context. He's called God. He's with the Father. He's creator of all things. And only in him is their life. You can't say in Michael was life and Michael was the, the, the light of men. You, you just, you know, you can't read that way that an angel would be the light of, of men. And then then we come to verse 14, then we come to verse 18, and then we go through the entire content of of John that really expresses in the strongest way the deity of Christ. So I would always suggest put the Greek away when you talk to an average Jehovah's Witness and focus on context. Because you're right, Jeff, they do use the New World Translation. And another objective we would have is to go to passages that they don't have answers to. Yes. Um, I found very productive, and of course we don't, negate the Holy Spirit's role in the proclamation of the gospel, I always tell Christians, if you have nothing to say, preach the gospel, preach that it was God in the flesh who died on that cross. He was resurrected unto life. Unless you believe in him, there is no life. And rely on, you know, if you don't have anything else to say, give a presentation of the accurate gospel. But what I found is productive is to go to places where they don't have a lot of answers. I never go to false prophecies anymore. I don't think it's really productive because they just don't believe it or they don't care or they just see their past as uh, not that relevant for them today. Similar to Mormons, you know, when they say an alive prophet is better than a dead prophet. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses. The, what I found is highly productive is the prologue of Hebrews because, and I've seen them struggle with this, because they don't have a lot of answers for the prologue of Hebrews. We have so much theology in Hebrews, even used in the New World Translation, which the only verse they actually alter is verse 8. Okay. Because they hold, I think, a predicated form of theos there. Uh, I think it reads, uh, your your throne is God. But um, in Hebrews chapter 1, it's, first it starts out that, you know, the the radiance of his glory, right, the radiance of God's glory... Is um, is the son who is the nature of him? Apigasmates, um, doxes, you know, I can quote a bit in Greek, but here you have the son as the exact representation, right? The exact representation of the father's nature. Michael cannot be the exact, the character. He cannot be the exact representation of the father's nature. So I, you know, it, it's. I think it's objective. Um, Fundamentally important to ask questions. It can Michael? Can any creature be the exact representation of God's nature?
1: Right. And really, right. they
6: they can't. They can't be the correct there And of course, if you go in the Greek text and and actually um, look at the lexical meaning there, it's it's un, more undeniable. But even in the English, Michael cannot be the exact representation of the hypostosios of the nature of him of of God. And then. Uh, from ver- it's very interesting because in verse 5 all the way down to I think 13 the author switches from his inspired words to now citing God the Father, right? Right. So we get this we get these passages where we're so privileged to actually hear God the Father express the nature of his own son. Yeah. In verse 6 and I always carry around with me. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a uh, New World Translations. I think it's a 1970, no, 1961 edition. Now, why that's important because of verse six. Verse six says, when he, the father, brings his firstborn into the world, he says, the father says what? Let all the angels of God worship him. Worship who? The son. That's the reference in Hebrews chapter one. The son. Let all the angels, of God worship the Son. So here we have a passage where God the Father is instructing all the angels, which excludes the Son from the angel category, Yes, yep, yep. But he says, let all the angels worship the Son. Creaturely worship is prohibited in Scripture. So when you look at the New World Translation at this passage from 1961, that's when they first um, created their New Testament. Nineteen fifty was the old. In 19, from nineteen sixty-one to nineteen seventy, every translation of the New World Translation had the word, the English word, worship. Every single one of them. I carry this thing around because I found this is so productive. When I open their New World translations first, I quote it, and they said, "No, it's not worship." And then I show them in their own in their own text. The confused looks that I see. It's you know, and I pray that God will use that. But that is a that is definitely a big gun. Yes, against Jehovah's yes. Witnesses. It's devastating. Where is the devastating. sun is worshiped. Yeah, and then um they they finagle their way out of verse eight, which is the only. And I'm, one more word on verse six. Um, they use obeisance after 1970. You know, let all the angels do obeisance to the sun. That was a that was an alternate word that means uh, respect or show honor or reverence, not the same as worship, right? Yeah. But we know that proskuneo can be used that way, but also can be used in religious worship, worship to God. How do we know the difference? Well, context, right? If it's in a religious context, then worship should be translated as such. It's reverent worship belonging to God alone. Is this a religious context? Yes, because the fact of the matter is, The entire section here is where? Where is it located? It's in the heavenlies. It doesn't get more religious than this. This is religious worship. The same thing when Catholics go in the Catholic church and they bow to Mary and they give her something called hyperdulia. Well, that's worship. You're in a church. You're rubbing beads. You're looking upon a statue of Mary and you're giving devotion to her. The scripture calls that worship. You can call it dulia, but religious dulia is worship that only God deserves. And worshiping the Creator is condemned by the Lord. So verse 6 is tremendously powerful, I think, if you make sure you understand that before, from 1970 backwards to 1961, the New World Translation had the word worship. And and in fact, a side note, Charles Taze Russell used to use this to show that Jesus was not Michael the Archangel um, in his early teachings. But then in verse eight, they controvert this and they say, but about the sun, I think God is your throne forever and ever, or your throne is God. And which is number one, it's a quotation from the Septuagint of Psalms um, uh, 101, but in English 102. The problem there is you have the the, the nominative word for God used in a, a evocative force, meaning it's a direct address force as the context dictates. But there's other grammatical reasons why they can't translate it like that. But besides that, you go to verse 10. Now, again, we're looking at the entire context. We're looking at verse 3. We're looking at verse um, We're looking at verse 6, the worship to the sun. We're looking at verse 8. Um, your throne is, oh, uh, God, is forever and ever. Then we're looking at verse 10. Now, 10, that's the detonator. That is the, because their verse, their Bibles have not changed that verse at all. It says, you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the work of the, your hand, right? Yes. Well, here's what's yes. interesting about this. Who's talking? Well, the Father. And who is he speaking to? Well, in verse 8, but about the Son, he says, right? So he's talking to the Son. And he says this, you, Lord. In fact, in the Greek, it has the actual vocative form of Kyrios, Kyrie, meaning a, a a form of direct address. It's the case of direct direct address. The father is addressing the son. You, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hand. And then he goes on. He's citing, and this is very interesting because I've watched all Witness go back to the actual passage uh, that the father is actually citing. Psalms 102, 25 through 27. That's where we find from 10 to 12 in Hebrews chapter one. So the father is actually appealing to an Old Testament passage where the context speaks of Yahweh as the unchangeable creator. And the Father applies that to Christ. And the fact that he addresses Jesus, the Son, as Lord would be the Yahweh of Psalms 102. You, Yahweh, in the beginning, lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all become old like a garment, like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same. Your years will never end. That was to Yahweh in Psalms 102. How yeah. is it that the Father applies this to the Son, and the New World Translation doesn't change it?
1: Yeah, they missed yeah. it. How do they answer this? Mm. You know what they, <laughs> they say?
6: They say it's talking about the sun in the future. But many Mm. problems, and I've seen them try to answer. There's a couple answers they try to use. It's just interesting watching them struggle because they can see it. You, Lord, about the sun. You, Lord, quotation from Psalms 102, speaking of Yahweh, of Jehovah. You, Jehovah. He directly addresses Christ as the Jehovah of Psalms 102, 25 through 27, the unchangeable creator. So... I stick to Hebrews a whole lot of times with Jehovah's Witnesses because you don't have a lot of time with them. And you can't bombard them with just passage after passage Mm -hmm. after passage, you know, doing what they do. They hopscotch around Scripture. You just got to stick to wherever the Lord gives you uh, with wisdom. Stick to a particular subject. I like Hebrews chapter 1. Sometimes I'll go to John 5, uh, 18 and 19 and ask, why did the Jews want to kill Christ? And uh, but I won't go anywhere else because I don't need to. You know why did the Jews want to kill Christ? It's interesting because, Joel witnesses always say that their common response is that the Jews thought this. Yeah, they and they were you know they were they were inaccurate when Jesus says, "My Father uh, is working to this very day until now," and the Son, I'm working too. And John says John's the one that is saying this. Not only was he alluin uh, he was loosing the sabbath but he was allegin he was calling god his father doing what making himself equal with god yeah the jews did not say that john said that mm-hmm. john said he was calling god his father making himself equal with god yeah an interesting note jeff the word calling there allegin is an imperfect tense showing that this was an ex- a a repeated action this wasn't the first time he called god his father not the first time it was a, so was breaking the Sabbath, a They're both in perfect tense. He
1: was constantly calling, not, yeah,
6: yeah. It's a repeated action, right? And we know what it says in John nineteen seven. We have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he claimed to be the Son of God. So that's what I do with Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't go to the false prophecies. Um, I like to use Scripture. I like to use Hebrews chapter one, or sometimes I like to use John, or some of the claims of Christ Himself that only God can claim, like I wanted- Alpha and Omega. I want
1: I to do two more things just just quickly, and then uh, we'll, we'll finish for today, but I think these are important. The first is to sort of um, get on the back of what you just said in terms of sticking to a particular scripture, really letting them wrestle with it. There's a story—I don't know if you've heard the story, Dr. DelCour— but um, it was actually Dr. Walter Martin that it was his ministry and his work that inspired me to do what I do uh, in, in ministry to the cults and ministry just in general. He had um, uh, a tape uh, that I got to listen to, um, and it was, it was amazing. Uh, he was speaking on the Watchtower, and he always invited the Watchtower to come uh, so he could engage with them after he spoke. And that you have these, these cassette tapes back in the 90s, where you could just listen to Dr. Walter Martin reason with these Jehovah's Witnesses that would show up. And there was this really interesting and powerful moment once where he was speaking, and they opened it up for Q&A afterwards. A guy walks up, and he, I think he says something to the effect of, Dr. Martin, do you recognize me? Yeah. And Walter Martin was like, no, um, if I remember this correctly. And the guy begins to relay the story how 20 years prior, Dr. Martin had showed up at the headquarters in New York He had come in, and this guy was working at the headquarters at the front and had thrown Dr. Martin out after a a little period of engagement. Well, it turns out, if I remember correctly, this man, it was Hebrews chapter 1 that Martin was pushing with him, and he could not escape Hebrews 1. And and if I remember correctly, this testimony, and I think I may have heard it somewhere else as well as the guy described it, uh, in the testimony he said that, that every time for the next, like, Couple of years that he would go back to the scriptures, and he got to Hebrews one. He was like terrified, and he struggled because he could not get it out of his head. and And Dr. Martin had basically impressed this passage upon him, and it's what God used to cut his heart, to open his eyes, to bring him to the to the to the truth. And so I, th- I think that's a really good testimony there of what God can do with a single passage to open our eyes. You know,
6: I heard him. I heard that. Uh, I think the man's name was Bill Centinar. And after that, I think he went with Walter Martin. I believe this is the same guy, Bill Sentinar, and he would do, you know, those mock dialogues Walter Martin would have. Right. He would. Uh, yeah, I think Bill Sentinar did it with Jehovah's Witness. He used to travel with Walter Martin. Who
1: was that guy? And yeah, wow. I heard
6: that. Huh. Walter Martin. Um, um, I remember the account. And I remember Walter Martin said he actually marked it in his Bible that he kept for 20 years. And he always had the verses marked that Walter Martin shared with him. Wow. Wow. That's
1: powerful. So last thing, let's just do this quickly. I know this would be good for people to hear because one of the first things that a Jehovah's Witness will sit down with you and talk to you about is the name of God. It's 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 on it's it's, it's, at the appetizer. It's the first thing you're going to talk about when you sit down. They're going to talk about the name of God. They're going to ask you as a Christian, how come you don't use the name of God? God gives to us his name. And they'll say, it's Jehovah. How come you have taken the name of God out of your Bibles? And they'll generally walk a person who's ignorant about this through... Um, a couple passages, and they'll say, what does God say His name is here? Now look at your Bible, or look at this translation. How come they took the name of God out? They changed the name of God. We're Jehovah's Witnesses. We represent, uh, I mean, the name of God is in the name of our organization. So they'll say, how come you don't use the name Jehovah? You have changed the name of God. Can you talk to us about that, uh, Dr. Dalcor, because that's important.
6: Yeah, and, you know, we we have to understand also, as Christians, that that is... um, a lot of times when I talk to Jehovah Witnesses, I'll use Jehovah, even though I think it's a badly mistranslated term of Yahweh or of the Tetragrammaton. But yes. um, nevertheless, just so they can identify, I'll use it. I have no problem using Jehovah. But the fact of the matter is, um, and what's really interesting, if you can get your hands on some old Watchtower uh, literature, they acknowledge that Yahweh um, near uh, more nearly... Uh, I'm reading a direct quotation, more nearly represents the Hebrew pronunciation of the divine name. 1964, Watchtower, July 15th, page 423. And in aid to Bible understanding, this is one of their Bible understanding textbooks. And page 885, they said this, Hebrew scholars generally favor Yahweh as the most likely pronunciation. So, and same with insight oh. for scriptures. There's a lot of of, um, of text to show that to be true, um, to show that that's not what they believe, and they, they admit that it didn't come about until 1270. Keep in mind, in English language, you know, there was no J's right until right. <laughs> you know. Until we look in the original uh, 1611 King James Bible, there was no J's. You know, Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's no uh, by way of evidence if you look in the Greek text. The earliest manuscripts, in the earliest manuscripts of the papyri, there is no instant of a Hebrew Jehovah Witness in the earliest ones that we have. So that is just an assertion with zero evidence. And sometimes they'll try to go to the Septuagint to show a couple couple passages where it was there, but that just shows that a couple versions of the Septuagint had it at a couple passages. In fact, the earliest fragments we have of the Septuagint does not have... Uh, the tetragrammaton in it. It just doesn't have it. So unfortunately they're so brainwashed to think that Jehovah's been the name since Moses and that simply um, it's simply untrue and as the watchtower even confirms it. Yes. And uh you know I there, there's an awake magazine in nineteen fifty seven that said one of them quoting, one of the most remarkable facts, not only about the extant manuscript of the Greek text but of many versions in ancient uh, ancient and modern modern manuscripts, is the absence of the divine name. So they even acknowledge it's absent in
4: huh.
6: many uh, Greek manuscripts. But the fact of the matter, in all Greek manuscripts, you won't find the Tetragrammaton there.
1: Yes, that's right. Very powerful. Fine. So um, thank you, Dr. Dalcor, for joining us today. I want to point everybody to christiandefense.org christiandefense.org pick up some more from Dr. Dalcour, Uh, make sure you guys engage with his material, watch some of his debates pick up some of his books and uh, hopefully we'll have him on again sometime soon, maybe one day in the studio Uh, thank you Dr. Dalcour for joining us today brother thank you, thank you very much absolutely brother, hope to talk to you soon All right, guys, so wrap up the show here last thoughts i uh, about to listen to some Charles Tate's Hustle. That's right. That's right. This is uh, Tell Him the Name of the Song.
3: Redeemed Thought. It's a hidden track called Flag on the Play.
1: Flag on the Play. It talks about Jehovah's Witnesses <coughs> and Mormons. Redeemed thought. So listen up, y'all. ApologiaRadio.com is where you go. If you want more great content, you can go there, pick up the past episodes, share those, but also become part of our All Access this year. Join with us in this ministry. And subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes. And have and your
5: friends subscribe on iTunes. And
1: YouTube. Subscribe to Apologia oh, yeah. Church on YouTube. We've been putting up a lot of great that stuff too. and more to come. Um, want to also point you guys to MissionAware.com. MissionAware.com is where you go to get some great T-shirts. They're supporters of our church and our ministry uh they have fantastic uh shirts uh Luke was wearing uh, just the other day uh BB BB Wa- Warfield there you go yeah BB Warfield they got Edwards
3: I got, I got my Spurgeon today Oh
1: yeah Spurgeon So I really enjoyed last thoughts here our new segment it was Not incredible Public radio with uh steady Randy Thank you very much. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Uh, if you want more on Jehovah's Witnesses, great book to pick up that really gives you more than just the Jehovah's Witnesses is Dr. Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults. It's a book that every Christian ought to have in their libraries because it is so helpful. So Dr. Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults, fantastic stuff. Also, you can go to alphanomegaministries.org, pick up some of the stuff that Dr. White did on the Jehovah's Witnesses. So there you go, guys, another episode of Apologia Radio in the can. We love you guys. We're blessed by you. King Ginger, thank you, brother, on the ones and twos. No problem. All right, guys. Catch you next week.